0: The academic world has become increasingly internationalized. But to what extent should we develop research trajectories and professional identities aiming towards generalizability and common denominators? Or to what extent should we showcase the local specificities of our questions, intellectual selves, and communities of inquiries? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Mireya Márquez Ramírez in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad Bin Khalifa Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new episode of El Café Latinx. We have a great speaker today. Mireia Marquez Ramirez is a associate professor of Journalism Studies and Media Theory at the Department of Communications at Universidad Iberoamericana in Mexico City. She got her PhD in Media and Communication from Goldsmith University of London in the UK, and her MA in Journalism Studies from Cardiff University, also in the UK. She has been appointed as a level two member of Mexico's system of national researchers by the National Council of Science and Technology. Her research interests include comparative media systems, comparative journalism cultures, Journalistic role performance, journalistic professionalism, news production, journalists and violence, and sports journalism. She is the principal investigator of the journalistic role performance study in Mexico and has participated, uh, leading or co leading Mexico's chapter of other cross national comparative studies, such as Worlds of Journalism and Journalism Students Global. She has published a large number of research articles in high impact journals, such as International Journal of Press Politics, Journal of Communication, Journalism and Journalism Studies. She is a member of scientific and editorial boards and is extremely active in the conference circuit. Thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Mireya, welcome to El Café Latinex.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Pablo. Greetings um, from Mexico City. Uh
0: Great to uh, have you from uh, Mexico City. So tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor?
1: Um, A lot of us, those who are interested in investigative journalism, come from actually a journalism background. And um, I'm a graduate of communication Let's, re, uh, let's remind you that um, uh, in Latin America, across Latin America, and especially across Mexico, we have less degrees on journalism and more on, on social communication. The idea was that we were able to, um, to have more skills and to be more employable in, in various sectors, which uh, turns out to be wrong because, because then you are not a specialist in, in anything. Um, but I was growing up as um, as a young, Beish, um, yeah, BA student in times where in Mexico uh, there was a sense of change. Uh, we had been enduring an authoritarian government back then in the late '90s, and then we were told democracy and neoliberalism were the kind of saviors that would take Mexico to the to the first world and be competitive in the world stage. And I I was very excited about that process and I uh, I wanted to record it. Um, I finished my BA in 2000. And in 2000 was the very same year that a new oppositional political party won the elections in Mexico in 2000. Uh, And uh, while I did not vote for this uh, center-right candidate, but I I was always a lefty. (laughs) Uh, I was very excited to be, to, to graduate in those days because I thought now finally the, the press will break free from, um, from collusion to power and media and political power. So I decided I wanted to be journalist on those days. Um, uh, you had the Zapatista movement going on. You had a lot of corruption cases, finally. Seeing the lights and uh, and being in the spotlight, but at the same time, uh, it it was a process of institutional building and and democracy, democratic institutions and oppositional parties finally getting a voice in the public sphere. So the atmosphere was at the same time pessimistic for for you know for the social problems, but optimistic for for a new future. So I was naive (laughs) to be honest, and I wanted to be journalist on those uh, very first years. Little I knew that as soon as I I began my career, I went into sports rather than into political journalism. And then I realized that no matter how structural the the, the change are at the macro level or the political level, at the agency level the actors need to change as well and you don't change uh, overnight. Journalists need to also learn, um, they don't only, they they don't uh, need to enjoy press freedom and environmental press freedom, they need to learn how to be free and how to conduct in this new environment and that's when I realized that a lot has been changed but a lot have not changed at all and that there was a lot of continuity and somehow uh, by being a journalist by this time in in, in the early 2000s um, I was the producer of a radio newscasts and then the war of uh, 9-11 happened and then the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars and I realized that Mexican journalism only reproduce the political discourses so it was no longer about talking one single uh, political party, but you now reproduce the multiple voices and, and statements being uttered by authorities without actual corroboration. So it didn't feel right, to be honest. I I felt like um, the newsroom dynamics were swamping me, and I felt trapped. And I and I and, and just like respondents, I felt that. I wasn't going to learn anything new in Newsroom. If any, I, I thought I was the myself. I had studied and read a lot and journalism wasn't really providing for me neither spaces nor opportunities for me to have this more, more um, not, not critical, but prospective outlook of what, what was really going on in the media. Um, when you are a journalist, uh, on deadline that, and especially in radio that you have to produce like sweatshop like stories, then you lose time you, you, you don't have time to reflect on on your profession. So I figure that perhaps academia was a, a, a way you know to address all these issues. First, I won a scholarship to work at the BBC in London, in which in in the Latin American section, the Hispanic section, and I worked there for three months. And I realized how different the cultures of news production were in Britain and in Mexico. And that huge cultural clash kind of um, led me to try to investigate why are the Conditions so different for Britain and for Mexico. Uh, so, so then I wanted to, st- to, to study a master's degree. Uh, and everybody was telling me to study a practical master's degree. So so but but I said I I'm already a journalist. I already knew how to use the, the buttons and the programs. And I, I, I have a picture of myself in a in a radio studio recording my voice and, you know, recording my dispatches to Mexico and to Latin American audiences. Uh, But that that wasn't really endearing anymore. I wanted to to do something new and to reflect that activity. And I didn't know back then what were going to be the, the, the conceptual tools, but I sensed that journalistic culture, for instance, was something that I wanted to explore I figured that my, reporting, my reporter colleagues were the way they were because they inherited from their peers or from their seniors. So I, so I wanted to know, so how this journalism works because despite having handbooks and despite having manuals and books and norms, at the end of the day, every day, uh, reporters in Mexico reproduce each other. They have a working methodology, they, they, they have a routine. Why? How has this come to be? And I think that was a, a, such a powerful um, question or reflection, you know, very primitive if, if you will, but but it, it, it was a very powerful drive that led me into academia. I wanted to investigate that. and I wanted to stop for a little and investigate that. And between my master's and and my PhD, both in Britain, I had a whole year in which I held three journalistic jobs in a website. And I also work in a showbiz celebrity program for Televisa. Um, Yeah, with all the frivolity and the vanity that that goes on in, in celebrity culture I, I I kind of had a revelation. Sports, politics, and showbiz might be different news bits but they have very similar methodologies. What we, what we call in Spanish, declaracionitis. So the tendency to report on a statement only and he said, she said kind of journalism. So why is the journalists that do not know each other, that working very, constrained environments like sports or like showbiz or like international reporters, um, kind of work similarly and have similar approaches to what's news and what is not news. And and I I wanted to investigate that. And and now um, I returned to London to do my PhD. Uh, But soon I realized that perhaps Britain wasn't the best country. I know that I see in retrospective uh, journalism studies is, I think, more developed in in in, um, in uh, the Netherlands or Nordic countries or uh, Germany or in the United States. Uh, but what I did learn from from the academic culture in Britain is that they endorse cultural studies pretty much. They study culture and they they. Uh, they study uh, meaning-making and uh, it, it has a great tradition, of course, of, uh, of this. Also, when I did my PhD back in 2006, as a field, journalism studies was just only beginning to emerge, at least in Europe and in Britain. And we didn't have all these cross-national collaborative uh, projects, we didn't have all these Emerging leading figures in the field, like Sid Lewis or like uh, Matt Carlson or like uh, Nikki Osher, um, digital journalism was just being recorded by people like you. <laughs> so there wasn't really much. It was sociologists or historians, like my 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 then supervisor, Professor James Corran, who who studied journalism, but not as a social process, more as a byproduct of. Um, of a media industry and of media power. So, so I think it was it, it was very important for me to, to do my PhD in times where the field was building because I am able now uh, to look back and say, wow, I mean, together we have built this amazing journalism uh, studies field in which uh, we are now able to locate very particular Uh, objects of study like fake news, like uh, how audiences react to clicks and so on. Uh, But but back then, for example, uh, uh, I I remember my literature review was full of studies of African or Asian uh, studies, but we had not theorized yet what journalism culture was, or how it worked or why differences were so huge Helen and mancini were just emerging in 2004 so it has been a fascinating journey really
0: wow i can i can tell so 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 many follow up questions um <laughs> yeah so you 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 go to the bbc and from the bbc you go straight to cardiff
1: um no to- i, I I returned to my new uh, for for 48, 48 months because I was on, on leave. They still paid my salary and I was the UK correspondent for my radio station. Uh, but after that, yeah, I returned to Cardiff. Uh, I, I fought, fell in love with Britain and, and, and for me, uh, it, it was always—I I know, m- maybe it's a cliche—but um, as a child, I always dreamed to to be a reporter, work in Britain, and then work for the BBC. And I think I I, I managed to,
0: to fulfill to, um,
1: to fulfill my dreams. But uh, but it it it—I I didn't grow up in Mexico City. I come from a working class family of of, of uh, primary teachers in Pachuca, Hidalgo, a city not far from Mexico City, but where there's virtually nothing, and not employment prospects or anything. So I, I I hadn't really figured whom to follow. But there was this karta, Japanese car, an anime cartoon in Mexico from back in the 70s that were shown in the 80s, Sandy Bell. And, um, Perhaps girls girls my age are acquainted with Sandy Bell she she used to be a Scottish girl in this Japanese anime and somehow she managed to become a reporter in Britain so I was fascinated with Britain at, and with being a reporter out of the example of Sandy
0: Bell <laughs> That's so you we, we go from you know Japanese anime to Mexico to Britain so <laughs> exactly. that that cross-cultural trajectory that's that's absolutely fascinating so so when you then go from cardiff to goldsmith you do your phd with james um um why did you go back to mexico did you you go back let's say did you go back straight from goldsmith after your graduation to mexico
1: i did Uh, but but first i think it's fair to say that professor coran I I think I didn't kind of value what back at the day. Um, But now that I see, he wasn't really doing um, scholarship on other countries other than Britain, but he had published this very influential book called The Westernizing Media Studies. Um, So I guess after that book, he kind of began to accept foreign students from Malta and Brazil, and I think Korea or China, and then myself. And then I I learned that that he didn't really talk to those students and then they had to seek for elsewhere for other supervisors. So I was very lucky lucky to be taken in by him and also to realize that it's a two way street. And in Latin America, we, we always, a bit of of in the defensive side about um, this inequality of academic flow and and how it's like if we go to study abroad to enlighten ourselves. But Professor Corran, despite the superstar power he holds in in, in the academic field, he also was willing to learn from a lot of us and, 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 and I think uh, it is a two-way street in the sense that um, Britain is certainly welcoming in, in other cultures and, and it's right in the middle of of, of the world. I know they are not really interested in Latin America the way that U.S. scholarship is for, for neighboring reasons and geographical reasons and also because of all the Latino community in the U.S. But in the case of Britain, it's not so much really. They, 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 they try to research more, and and more influential scholars tend to be those from India, or from you know South Asia, of all the former colonies of, of Britain. So for me to be a Latin American uh, student, especially from Mexico, and be supervised by, by by a British media historian was quite a thing. You know, I I, I haven't really reflected on it, but. But now more Mexicans study in goldsmiths, and more Latin Americans go to Britain. But it was not that common back then in in, in the early 20s. Um, I wanted to 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 stay in Britain, but then um, uh, David Cameron took over in 2009. Uh, in 2009, yes, and it was the financial crisis, and then they tightened immigration policies. Uh, so it was really difficult for me to remain in Britain, despite I could have remained legally. Uh, they needed me to have money, and uh, and then I ran out. Of, I ran out of scholarship. My government funded my studies, my research, graduate studies. Um, so I had no choice to come back. Really, I, I didn't think it through. I just had to. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have money left. I was it was really a a dark um, moment and I still had to finish the dissertation and I still had to pay my bills. So the only place where I don't have uh, to pay rent is in in, back in Mexico. So by the end of 2010, I was back. And, and it, it was really a very, very difficult transition time. It's 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 always a cultural class when you go abroad, uh, but it's also a cultural class when then you come back um, not only to your country, but also to your Mexican academic culture, which I didn't have. Um, a lot of students, for example, in Mexico, it's its research uh, degrees are as important as master's degrees because master's degrees are researchers in training. So there's a lot of support for master students here and and, um, and I didn't do my master's in Mexico, therefore I didn't know anyone. And it, it was a, a challenging moment to come back, but I saw an advert, an app, an, a job ad advertised on Twitter. Someone posted it on Twitter. <laughs> I used to be on Twitter uh, too, um, too much in those early days of 2009 and 10. And I saw it, it, it was a position for film studies. And I said, well, I'm going to apply anyway. And I applied and here I am. <laughs> so I think I, I didn't really struggle to to find a tenured position. Uh, back then, it, it was 2010. And um, I started on January 2011. But bear in mind that a few years later, it was now so competitive that i don't think any other graduate would be as lucky as i was 10 years ago now now it's, and now it's really competitive uh it, it's very common that uh, that 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 graduates are hold doctorate degrees and even postdocs in mexico so n- not only there are not job openings but also it's really not that simple to to get yourself a tenured position, but I did, and I'm extremely grateful for this um, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to uh, to work in Britain. I think because the government, the British government, decided that for a university to hire me, they would have to justify that I'm better than Danish and and all the European Union applicants. And that would only be justified if the position was about Latin American um, scholarship or Latin American profile, which is very unlikely to happen in Britain. Not in the US though, where I've seen positions advertised for, for predominantly Latino minorities, but that's not the case in Britain. So I didn't really stand stood that chance there, uh, but I did in my home country. Um, with various consequences uh, and, and uh, pardon if i if i overgo too much or overstretch too much on the answer it's uh, it was a difficult time again the cultural class the Mexican academic culture was at least at that time so different you know the approaches to research, the approaches of how to write, and express ourselves in Spanish. The issues at the the core of scholarly concerns were so different back then. It really doesn't look like long time ago, but it is a decade already. And I really struggled to to fit in. It took me a year uh, to, to, to finally realize that I'm back in my country And and now I need to blend the academic culture in Mexico and the Latin American academic culture with the Anglo-Saxon academic culture. And I'm sure you, Silvio, Jairo, all of us (laughs) struggle with the same issues. You have to be a a Hispanic Latin American when you are abroad, uh, but then you are uh, kind of casted as a foreign when you come back home. And it's not easy sometimes to uh, to balance all those two different identities, I think I have managed now. But now I struggle to write in Spanish. I think I write. I write, not that I speak, but I do write much better in in English. And I now I think in English, and it's sometimes difficult to reconciliate both, especially because unlike um, unlike nordic cultures for instance where english is their second language we do have spanish which is a very prevalent language around the world it's like 23 countries have it as a native uh, language why would they want to read something in english why <laughs> when you have 23 countries that produce and that publish and that are also looking at the same issues. Why would they? I mean, there is a lot of resistance sometimes in reading in English. People don't want to read in English, even if they can't. They don't want to. And all my literature and my bibliographic references are in English. And this also raises questions about about Global South scholarship and and how we cast ourselves in, in this kind of global flow of of academic exchange and sometimes i have identity crisis of who i am am i a mexican in the world stage or or what am i (laughs) it's sometimes difficult i'm sure you relate
0: (laughs) yes i can relate absolutely so so um as you as you described it i mean you when, when you go overseas um you, and, and Silvia Weisberg talks very eloquently about this, right? That once you emigrate, you, you don't really have a main place, right? I mean, you are always itinerant, you are almost nomad. And when you if you return, when you return, in part you still experience that by having been socialized professionally in another country. So so what strategies have you implemented to sort of navigate this dual professional identity and 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 what have been the different degrees of success
1: ah what a great question because I'm on the other side of the fence like you are like you are for example in the u.s still and sylvia steel but you're lucky enough to have uh foreign sounding surnames, right so so a lot of my students don't know that Silvio is Argentinian and they don't know that you are Argentinian either uh, because George sounds Polish and he sounds who knows what, but not certainly not Lopez or Gomez or Gonzalez. <laughs> so uh, so um, a lot of people only found out about Silvio for example, in my country uh, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. and when. When they realized he was Argentinian, you know, their the face light lighted up. Anyway, about your question. Um well, you know, you have to build the like in COVID-19, you have to build the airplane while flying, and that's what happens here as well. Um I think I prefer to publish in English, in in, in these journals because I realized that, 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 that that's who I am, like the, the authors who actually inspire my work are, are um, published in English. So I think I can relate more to the scholarship if I publish in English. So what I have decided is that when it comes to journal articles, I publish in English because I also want the global community of scholars to listen to what Mexicans have to say. For example, I always think it uh, like this, Um, right now Americans are concerned about fake news because now they have Trump, as we were discussing before the podcast. I was I was reading a piece by the Swedish scholar Henrik Ornenbrink, a talented, brilliant scholar. I, I really admire his, his scholarship. And he has um an article about the three big transformations of journalism. And he speaks about professionalism, commercialism, and digitalization. And I gave that paper to my students, and we were all my Mexicans. PhD students and we were all discussing how um, Western scholars have their lives sorted out. (laughs) For us, I think, uh, yes, professionalization is, is, is one big transformation, but what about democratization and what about press freedom? So for me, it is essential to continue to publish in English you know, to relativize either the optimistic or the very pessimistic outlooks that sometimes Western scholars have. You know, I mean, fine, there are fake news, but there are journalists being killed on the streets for what they do in Mexico. Um, So so there are some um, very simple issues that the Global South faces, and which should be there at a uh, 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 crucial and key issues to be discussed in, in scholarship. and they added and we are all researching fake news, uh, but this fake news have been on and on and on in our countries for decades and <laughs> it's not just they, they weren't just born with, uh, with trump. they were born here in mexico with pre-propaganda and, and with authoritarian governments and so forth. So democratization of journalism is is not something that Nordic countries deal with. So I think my voice and those of other Latino and Latin American scholars should be heard more. Um, and it's a pity that um, that Mejado and there are only a few of us publishing. But at the same time, it's really good news that more and more and more Latin American scholars are. Publishing in English, you know, to remind the global community that it's not all about them and that there are other very important issues going on in the global south. That for that for um, on the one hand, on the other hand, I tend to publish a lot in, in Spanish, but I prefer to publish more theoretical and reflective pieces. Know that um, our tendency in Latin America to write essays has been very criticized, but. Um, but when you do theorize after you do empirical research, then I think it's valuable. I think um, our um, research students deserve more situated theoretical frameworks, but not theoretical frameworks from the 80s and you know political economy and Barbero and all these valuable contributions from Latin Americans to to world scholarship but more, con- more more contemporary uh, conceptualizations for understanding new and contemporary phenomena. And I think we should aim to build or at least write or at least reflect on all the scholarship and all these dialogue between Global South and Global North in our own language. So they understand, I mean, it, it, it's good that the, uh, people like you publish in Spanish and in English or Silvio who publishes in Spanish and in English. But at the same time, um, we don't have to insulate ourselves. And just because, because, because there is this great academic scholarship in Spanish, then we should ignore everything else. And that's probably still the case in many universities in Mexico, although it's slowly changing. Um, so for those of us who have had the opportunity to face both worlds, so to speak, I think we, sh- we have this kind of ambassadorial duty to translate each other, to, to try to understand, um, the global north, the, the scholarship from the global north and, 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 you know, try to challenge it from our own reality without being too relativistic about, uh, about uh, our own reality. We call it in Spanish, uh, the the belly button of life. We are not the belly button of anything, Uh, but if we learn how other people publish in English, Russians, Eastern Europeans, Africans, Asians, and so forth, I think we are better able to locate our own problems and our own objects of study in Latin America, uh, and, and, and make them more um, appealing and more interesting for global audiences. So, so in a nutshell, my strategy is to try to, to be in both lanes. Do you not know, publish more empirical work in English uh, in, the, in the journals that I know are interested in these topics, but live like the more The bigger picture, I published that in Spanish because that's very useful, I think, for students.
0: Excellent, excellent, excellent. So so what about the reception of that work in English? I mean, there's been uh, increasing concern among some uh, academic academic communities, in particular uh, those who do comparative work, about uh, the negative effects of the double standard in the review process, right? Whereby, um, you know, if you publish uh, about, you know, with data from a country in the global north, the US, Canada, the UK, continental Europe, etc., you do not really need to justify your location and the studies assume to yield universal uh, findings as long as it follows certain methodological guidelines. However, for the rest of the world, which is almost 90% of the world's population, um, you need to justify, first of all, why it's worth conducting that study, and second, um, you, there is always the sense that what you're writing about is the particular, right, the, say, the exception, but it's not necessarily the norm. So. Um, have you faced in your own work in the review process or in conferences, etc., that sort of double standard? Have you had to deal with it? And if so, how have you dealt with it?
1: I have, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of my first uh, collaborative papers in, uh, in journalism, the journal, you know. I had this nasty reviewer saying that, uh, why should Latin America be of concern for anyone outside Latin America? So in other words, why should we care about Latin America? Just make it uh, more theoretical so I care more. Otherwise, only people living and working in the the region care. And um, we were quite upset about it. Mellado and I, (laughs) we were working that paper um, luckily, the the editor didn't think or didn't support uh, that view, and we were eventually published. But I realized uh, that that yes, that's true. I had to justify, and our papers always have to have a surname, so I always had to do to say uh, Mexican journalist and paradigm repair and this and that. But but uh, I have never seen. For example, David Rives book, say Ameri- American Journalism. No, I think he does have that American tit- uh, title. But yeah, they don't have to justify um, in the US that they are doing a study about the US, whereas I do have to justify that I'm doing a study on Mexico. But what I have learned to do is to twist that to my advantage. I think that over the years, you learn that because journals are so pressured to include now more, um, uh, to, to be more inclusive and include more women and more um, Hispanic uh, scholars. Uh, to, I take that to my advantage, I'm afraid, and 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 think that, that yes, perhaps a, a journal five years ago, six years ago, wasn't as interested about uh, subnational Mexican journalism. But perhaps now, you know, enforced by, <laughs> by the pressure to be more inclusive, I think that can work in my advantage. In, 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 in the projects that we have, uh, Mellado, well, Mellado is the leader, but uh, very close to her in that respect. Uh, the management of this journalistic role performance project for which I have the book that just arrived yesterday, um, I, I just realized that international comparative global projects led by a Latin American woman working in Latin America are not common. And for that sense, I think that is a huge achievement for Claudia and I must say for myself as well because the two of us or three or four are, are the ones who who write most of the the papers and who have theorized. and who and so so for me that's a huge uh, honor because a lot of these uh, global projects include uh, scholars from the global south, you know, to to fill quotas or whatever, but now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's sad, but it's true. Uh, but now, uh, luckily, it it is now um, Latin American scholars who are actually leading the projects, and and the response has been great. And now we have about fifty colleagues from all over the world on board. So perhaps these um, boundaries have, are erasing and it doesn't matter whether we have very strong accents. Now I'm proud of my strong accent. Before I had to really, really fake the British accent and try to speak like them until I realized that this is who I am and that I'm never gonna fit in there and I'm never gonna be treated like one of them. And I am Mexican and I'm very, very proud to to be one. And I speak like I speak, and I have strong accent, and so be it. And that, I think that's my <laughs> that's my position now. I, I I have no intention of faking any American or British accent anymore, and um, and and that's for my scholarship as well. I'm not twisting my scholarship to suit anything. I'm simply doing a scholarship that that. It's interesting for journalism scholars, regardless of whether my surname is Marquez or Gomez or Gonzalez. So the positive outcome is that now I understand how academia works generally. Yes, there are complaints. The, the, I have issues with some things, but at the end of the day, uh, I, I see fascinating scholars from around the world doing amazing work. Um, and I, I, I tend to be inspired by them, regardless of whether they are Chinese or Korean or Indian or Russian or Swedish or Argentinian, whatever. Um, so I expect to be treated the same, right? And I think it is a, a gradual process that you, you you build. But I have immense respect for women like Claudia Mellado and, and other uh, Latin American female scholars who, who have paid the way for the rest of us to, to have it a little easier. And, and I expect my colleagues and recent graduate students from around the world and, and Latin America have those same, same chances as well. Um, uh, more and more Latin American PhD students are studying in the US and in Britain and in Europe generally. And uh, it's sad that they are not likely to get of um, tenured positions anytime soon. <laughs> it, it's also the reality of things. But at the same time, uh, I think Latin American universities are starting to feel the pressure of these graduates and are beginning to, to slowly open for, for positions. And, and it, it's good that Latin Americans who studied abroad then come back home and then, um, and play these dual roles of uh, of being ambassadors for both academic communities.
0: Excellent, 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 excellent. I have one final question that I that you are leading me towards. So, you know, building on what you just said, um, if you have magical powers, right, and could be granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication and media studies to change. What would you wish for?
1: Um, yeah, I could, I, I could be invisible, so the work is speaks for us rather than our surname, skin color, or gender. I think, despite what I said before, we are still not first authors as women, and sometimes. Uh, it is still assumed that uh, that an author is a male. I always have that problem, for example, even with Tuchman, with gay Tuchman, um, students in Latin America think it is a he. They always say, el autor, <laughs> the author. Uh, so if I had a magical power, that would be to, to be invisible, to have no discernible gender or surname or nationality, and to let, my work speak for itself and that would also apply to to labels of um, of location in our scholarship so to be in order to be strictly evaluated on terms of empirical and theoretical contribution rather on whether um my English is not fit for the journal because yes, it might not be fit. But sometimes even native speakers of English get those remarks, and I think that's really mean. <laughs> but uh, but if, if only uh, I we we didn't have to locate our research in a certain geographical region, I think it would be a, a fairer review and publishing system. At the same time, it's good that we do. So we relativize our problems and don't think that uh, fake news revolve around Trump and, and ourselves, but uh, that there are other much um, troubling issues around the world that need attention.
0: Excellent. That was absolutely superb. Thank you very much, Maria, for a great conversation. Thank you very much to our listeners for having stayed with us until the end. and. Uh, This concludes this episode of El Café Latinx. I invite you to join us again for the new one. Thank you very much and have a great rest of your days, mornings, and evenings, depending on when you listen to this one. Thank
1: you very much.
0: Goodbye. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.